Thank you, Amalia. That was that was tremendous. And band, if you're like me, you're going to miss worshiping together in song this summer, and maybe you want to go by the student activities office and pick up one of our worship tapes. Um, if we don't have any available, they can make copies for you for, for a couple of dollars, I believe. So you may want to do that. Matthew chapter 18. Very familiar text. Let's begin. We're actually going to work our way through the entire chapter in the time that we have left, but let's begin with the first 14 verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and he set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you should, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whatever, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. Verse 9, and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. Thus, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, that's sort of the introduction to this chapter. And it's a remarkable chapter because it is the first instance in the entire New Testament of Christ giving instruction to the body of Christ, to the New Testament church. And in these first 14 verses, what he does is he sort of lays the groundwork for what he is going to teach in the remainder of the chapter. And by laying this groundwork, he sets out for us some real key principles that sort of describe the dynamics of the body of Christ, the church, you and me. And those three principles are very clear in this passage. In verse 4, the first one is the principle of humility, the principle of greatness in the kingdom of God or the greatness in the body of Christ. And that greatness is known in humility. He says, and whosoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And that is a foundational principle when it comes to understanding the dynamics within the body of Christ. And then he goes on from that in verse 5, and he offers a second principle. And that is the principle of oneness. He says, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. It's an interesting principle that is found elsewhere in the Bible. For instance, in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, you remember when Christ confronts Paul in his salvation experience... Christ says to Paul, why do you persecute me? And of course, Paul is confused by that somewhat because he has not been attacking Christ, but he has been persecuting the church. And what Christ is saying there is the same thing that he is saying here. And that is there's this 
principle of oneness in the body of Christ. Turn over to Matthew chapter 25, later in the same book, Christ again addresses the same issue. In verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate from one another as the sheep separates, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and we give you drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Verse 40, and here's the principle. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. I turn back to Matthew 18. The principle is a very important foundational principle of the body of Christ. And it is that principle of oneness. That you and I are make up what is known in theology as a corporate personality. For you to be affected is for me to be affected. That is why Paul says, when there are tears, I weep. When there is joy, I rejoice. It's also the reason that Paul instructed the church at Corinth to put out from among them a sinner. Because sin in the presence of the body of Christ affected everyone, including the Lord himself. And that's a foundational principle if we're to understand the body of Christ, the church. And he lays it out for us in this passage. The second, third principle, however, is found in the following verses, verses 6 through 10. And, and I'm going to call that the principle of zealousness. There's the principle of humility or greatness. There's the principle of oneness. And in this particular section, verses 6 through 10, I'm going to call that the principle of zealousness. Because within the body of Christ, there needs to be present a zealousness that we possess to pursue one another, to encourage one another in our walk with the Lord. And that's what he says. But whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble in, believe in me, excuse me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. And he goes on to talk about how critical it is that on the one hand, negatively speaking, we not be the cause of sin. And on the other hand, positively speaking, we are zealous to pursue someone in their sin. Zealousness, eagerness to be engaged in each other's lives is an, an inseparable quality of the body of Christ. It's just not that we must possess humility. And it's not just that we must understand our oneness, our organic oneness in the body. We also must be engaged in each other's lives. And those are the foundational principles that he lays out before us. I mean, it's clearly, reading God's word, we understand that it is God's desire for us, as his people, to possess purity. It is impossible, really, to study the word of God attentively and not be overwhelmingly convinced that God seeks above all else for us holiness. Right? There's no question about that. And that God is not only committed to our holiness and purity, but at the same time, if he is indeed committed to that, he must also be grieved deeply 
by the presence of sin among those that are members of his body. And we see that in these opening verses of Matthew chapter 18. Quoting directly then from the Old Testament, Peter commands the church, you shall be holy for I am holy. Undoubtedly, it is a core teaching of the body of Christ that God intends and wills for us to be pure. And it is all through the New Testament. So central, in fact, is the issue of holiness in our lives that it indeed serves as a test for the genuineness of our salvation. Right? Remember in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, among other places, where John says, no one who continues to sin has either seen nor known God. Holiness and purity and our appetite and eagerness for those are actually tests for the genuineness of our own salvation. No question, therefore, that my response to my sin and your response to your sin is something that really defines whether or not we are truly members of the body of Christ. Because if we are God's children, we are committed to God's will, and that will is holiness. And that commitment to holiness excludes our engagement and involvement as a pattern in the issues of sin. However, me and my sin, and you and your sin, doesn't happen to be the subject of Christ's teaching in Matthew chapter 18. If it were, I think we would be okay, because you're not concerned that I'm concerned about my sin, right? That's okay with you. Dave, as long as you're concerned about your sin, hey, I've not got a problem with that. And if the person sitting next to you is concerned about his or her sin, that's okay. That's not a real hard teaching to receive from the lips of our Lord. But that's not the subject of Matthew 18. The subject of Matthew 18 is that I am called by Christ as a man who must possess humility, as a man who must be someone who is committed to the dynamic of oneness, and as someone who must possess the zealousness of holiness to be concerned about your sin. Not just mine. And that's the subject of Matthew 18. Not that I am broken over my sin only, but that I'm broken over your sin and that you're broken over my sin. And that is the teaching of Matthew chapter 18. Christ in this passage is calling us not to personal responsibility, but to community obligation. That is the subject of Matthew 18. In 1979, a sociologist named Robert Bila, maybe you read the book Habits of the Heart, he set out to conduct an extensive interviews with 200 average middle-class Americans. As he studied what he called the habits of the heart, he defined the thoughts and lives of these individuals, and a pattern emerged, he says, in this book. Many people had no sense of community obligation, he said. They saw the world as a fragmented place of choice and freedom that yielded little meaning or comfort. They even seem to have lost the language to express any kind of commitment to anything such as church, family, and community. The only commitment, he says, that was evident was a commitment to self. He said, the God of our day is individualism. That is what Americans are into. Uh, you guys seen The Lion King? My son Taylor is here, and I'm, I'm a little fearful to quote The Lion King because he knows the whole thing by heart. But remember in The Lion King, there's this, right after the three hyenas were pummeled by, um, by Mufasa. If you saw the movie, you remember that. And they're back in their den. And as they're back in their den, they're sort of playing around and, and Scar shows up. 
and they hear someone's voice and they turn around and the one hyena says, oh, it's only you, Scar. Remember that? And the other one says, yeah, we thought it might be someone important like Mufasa. And then the other hyena says, ooh, now that's power. The very mention of the name makes me want to shudder. Remember that? Remember? Did you see that? Am I getting it right, Taylor? So far, so good. And the other hyena then turns around and says, Mufasa. And, the, and then the hyena who's got the Whoopi Goldberg as the, as the voice, she, she goes, ooh. And then she goes, do it again. And the guy goes, Mufasa. And he goes, ooh. Remember that? Is that right? Taylor, did I get it right? Okay. Do you remember that? In the world that you and I live in, I can't think of any term or any description that makes us kind of shudder more readily than the description of community obligation. Because it strikes against the core of the teaching and the popular culture of our day. Individualism is the God of the day we live in. It is the world that is trying to press us into its mold that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. Individualism. It's okay for me to want to be burdened and concerned about my sin. And it's okay for you to be concerned about your sin. But when we move into the category where I need to be engaged in your sin and you need to be engaged in mine, ooh, community obligation. Ooh, say it again. Obligation. Ooh, it's kind of like, ah, I don't like that. But in the passage where Christ lays out the foundational truths of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, the very first issue he addresses is that issue of community obligation. There's a uh, song that was written by Billy Joel that really puts the, the, uh, our commitment to individualism to a tune. Remember this song? I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Remember that? Go ahead with your own life. How's it end? Just leave me alone. Well, it's a cute little song. But I think it accurately reflects the popular spirit of our day. I don't care. Go ahead with your own life. I don't care what you do. Just leave me alone. In the New Testament, Paul made a lot of profound statements about the body of Christ and our responsibilities as members of that body. In Romans chapter 12, as I've already mentioned, he says, be not conformed, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the people we're to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Jesus Christ. We're to be imitators of our Lord. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, walk worthy of the gospel, the eternal gospel that God planned and put into place before time even began. We could go to those great, profound statements, I believe, in the New Testament. And we ought to write in the margins of our Bibles this question. Am I committed to the community obligations given to me by my Lord? If I am indeed a person who is pursuing the renewed mind that Paul talks about, if I'm indeed the person who is pursuing imitation of Christ that Paul talks about, 
If I'm to be the person who is committed to walking worthy of the gospel, as Paul talks about it, then I must be a person also who is equally committed to my community obligations. It's not an elective course. It's foundational to the body of Christ that we be those kinds of people. Look again in Matthew chapter 18, because in the rest of the passage, verses 15 through 35, Christ gives us three community obligations. And obviously, because of the size of this passage, we're not going to look at it in much detail. But I just want to lift those three obligations out for all of us to reconsider this morning, because they are foundational to the body of Christ. If we're to be the people that God has called us out to be a royal priesthood bringing praise and honor and glory to him. Verses 15 and 17. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. I want you to notice three Imperatives that are found in those two, in those three verses. In verse 15, it is the imperative go. In verse 16, it is the imperative take. And in verse 17, it is the imperative tell. And what I'm going to call those three verses is the community obligation of initiation. It is very clear in those verses that what Christ is laying out for all of us, not to just consider, but to be a part of, is the community obligation of initiation. There is no doubt that what the Lord is saying here is that you don't deal with sin when someone simply comes to you. You don't deal with sin indirectly. It is very clear, and there's no way to argue the point, that what he is saying there is that if we're going to be faithful to our community obligations as a member of the body of Christ, then we need to be people of initiation when it comes to sin. There's no way to argue with that text. If your brother sins, go. He doesn't say consider. He doesn't say think about it. He doesn't say anything else that would leave you with any other thought than just simply, I have a responsibility to go. The community obligation of initiation. Now, the person that you're initiating that conversation with is described as brother in this passage. There are a lot of people, and maybe you're one of them right now. You're saying, well, yeah, wait a second, but let's, let's limit that. The word brother maybe is, can be limited in some way so that I don't sense a responsibility to just everyone. And it is an interesting term. It's a term that is the most generic and broadly used description of those that are considered to be the part of the body of Christ. And the only time that this term is limited, it's never limited when it's used in and of itself, inherently, in other words, the word brother doesn't limit the group at all. What limits it is the context. And in those cases where you find the word brother limited to a smaller group within the body of Christ, it has always done so in the context. Like the brothers at Philippi or the brothers at Galatia or something of that sort. But in this passage, there is no restrictive clause given at all. What Christ says is, if your brother sins, go. It is the broadest description. It is the most comprehensive term found in the Bible for the body of Christ and the members of that body. Obviously, the, the term including not only males, but females who are members of that body. 
So the person that we are obligated to go to is not friend, family, roommate, dorm mate, classmate, whatever mate, not a mate at all. It's brother. And that's a hard teaching. And maybe one of the reasons that we consider this passage one of the hard sayings of Christ. Because it does take a supernatural movement of God in our lives to have that kind of both boldness and meekness to do that. It's one thing for me to put my arm around someone I know very well. It's another thing for me to put my arm around someone who works for me or someone who comes to me. But it's a whole different deal, isn't it? When I'm aware of sin in someone's life that I know is a brother or sister in Christ and I really don't have the foundation of relationships which all of us would like to have, but I've got the information that has been given to me through some channel about their sin. And what am I going to do with that information? Where am I going to take that information that I have come into contact with? Am I going to store it and continue to think questionably about the person? Am I going to try to plug it in somewhere and hope that I don't become bitter? Am I going to be able to contain it so that it doesn't come out in the form of slander some time down the road? Or am I going to do what this passage clearly tells us to do, and that is to go to the brother? Kim and I were in Iowa years ago, and we were sitting Sunday afternoon, innocently having lunch with a friend of ours that I'd known for a few years that was the president of a college in the Midwest. It was just the three of us. And we're sitting there having lunch, and, and you'd have to know this guy. He, he's a marvelous guy. He pastors now a very, a very uh, well-known church, and he's just a tremendous person. And we're sitting there having lunch with him, and Kim and I are on one side, and he's on the other, and we're just chatting, just kind of catching up. And, and just out of nowhere, he says, hey, did you hear about so-and-so that they're involved in an adulterous affair? I mean, right in the middle of bite one of the prime rib and bite two. I mean, it was just... And we knew the people he was talking about. We didn't know them personally, but we knew the ministry, and we knew a lot about the ministry, and we knew the people. And these people were, uh, this institution and this ministry happened to be close to where my wife is from in Michigan. And after the lunch, Kim and I go, oh. You know, and I asked the guy, I asked the president, I said, so what have you done about that information? How did you hear that? And he, and he heard it from another president of another college. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? And he says, well, I don't know the guy, I'm not going to do anything. And Kim and I later after that lunch began to talk about that. We don't know these people. We didn't want this information, but it's been dumped in our lap. What are we going to do about it? Obviously, there's this story about this guy's being told all over the place. Not only does this president of this college know about it, he found out from another president of another college in another state. And somewhere, somehow, someone has got to go to this brother and sit down with him eye to eye and confront him about this issue of sin, or at least give him the opportunity to deny it. I didn't know if it was true or not. All I knew is that I've been given this information, so is Kim, about this guy who was leading this significant ministry in the Midwest, and he was in sin. This guy was a president of a minister, of a, of a institution, a Christian institution, that I'd, I'd never been in. A few weeks later, Kim and I were uh, in Michigan visiting her family. I went to a pastor near him, and I said, have you heard this story about this guy? He said, yeah. He said, yeah, I think it's true, because there's a guy in our church who 
who's related to the lady who's supposedly involved with this president, this organization. I said, what have you done about it? He said, oh, nothing. I said, what are you going to do about it? No, I don't know him. I don't think I really should do anything. So Kim and I talked again. I said, Kim, I just don't know what to do with Matthew 18. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins, go. No one's going to this brother. I wish this pastor would go because he at least knows him. I wish these presidents would go because they're colleagues. I don't know the guy. And at that time, I was a student myself. So one Saturday or Friday morning on my vacation in Michigan, I got up, spent time in the Word and prayed, got my jeans and shirt on, got in my car, and drove to this institution. Went to the receptionist and said, could I speak to the president? And uh, she said, he's not in, but his assistant is in. And the story included the assistant involved in this adulterous affair as well. And I said, do you know when the president's going to be in? He said, no, he's out, for, he's out for several weeks traveling. And I said, but his assistant is here, the vice president? Yes, I'd like to speak to him. So I said, sure. She ushers me into his office. We sit down. He has no idea who I am. He thinks probably I'm there to, to inquire about their ministry. We sit down. We start talking. I introduce myself. He introduces himself as the vice president of this, this very large ministry. And I'm just a little student sitting there in my jeans and my T-shirt with my hands folded trying to be faithful to Matthew 18. And I said, you know, I, I'm not really good at chit-chatting, and, and, I'm really, and I'm really not here to do that anyway. And he said, yeah, I can tell. He said, you seem to have something on your mind. I said, I do. He said, well, what is it? Just tell me. And I said, are you involved in an adultery with this lady? I didn't know how else to do it. I said, are you involved in I have heard that you're involved in an adulterous affair with this lady. Is that true? I was scared to death. I had no idea what to do. I was just trying to be faithful to Matthew 18. Because Matthew 18 doesn't say, well... There's limits to this. It says go. Initiate the contact. The second community obligation in this passage. You want to know what happened in the story? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> uh, I, was, it, it, I don't really know how it all turned out, actually. It, I talked to that gentleman. I talked to, went back to the pastor, asked him to confront the president of the, the institution. And... Um, all I know is that two people resigned, a man and a woman, from the ministry in a matter of weeks. I'm assuming it was because of this issue. It was, in fact, true. Number two, the community obligation of right motivation. And this is critical. This is key. Because we don't only have the obligation to initiate, we have the obligation to initiate with the right heart attitude. Look at verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord... How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Christ said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts. And he goes on into a parable. But the key verses here that I want to stop at are verses 21 and 22. And Christ says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. The number is not significant in those verses. What is significant is that Christ is driving at a point here, and that is the condition of the heart when you are involved in the confrontation process. And the condition of the heart is critical because it's not just the mere going that makes it a right act. It is going with the heart of Christ, with the right goal, 
the right intention, the right spirit. And you know that. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that if someone is caught in sin, we're to go to him with gentleness, he says there. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 26, Paul says that we are to go to someone with kindness. And this passage here in Matthew chapter 18 opens with the character quality of humility. Humility and gentleness and kindness must characterize our spirit when we are dealing with someone who is involved in an issue of sin. The community obligation here is the obligation of a right motivation. And I don't want to go into a, an exposition of Galatians 6, but it is very clear in that passage that the mere process of confronting someone in sin exposes the confronter, not the confrontee, but the confrontor to sin, particularly the sin of pride. Because built right into that dynamic is this sinful potential to use this opportunity as an occasion for me to elevate myself over you and to establish my spiritual superiority in some way. And that's why when Christ calls us here to initiate the confrontation process, He does so with a warning that we do it with the right motivation, with humility, with gentleness, and with kindness. Community obligation number three. Look at verses 23 and following. And this is a, this is a really fascinating obligation here. For this reason, going on now, Christ is teaching us about the church. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents, an enormous amount, worth in our day millions of dollars, amount just impossible to repay is the point. But since he did not have means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, and all that he had in repayment be made. But look what happens in verse 26. The slave repents and confesses his sin. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, the Lord, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He is taking responsibility, complete responsibility for what he has done, and he is confessing and repenting of that before the person he has offended. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, just like he had previously. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, however, but he went and he threw him in prison until he paid back all that he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord what had taken place. And then the Lord summoned that slave back and he said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he repaid all that was owed him. This is an incredible passage. 
Because not only do we have the community obligation of initiation and the community obligation of right motivation, this is a real hard teaching here from our Lord. Because in this passage, he lays out for us that we have a community obligation of what I will call life demonstration. Life demonstration. Did you get what is happening in this passage? Someone has offended someone else. That person goes and talks to that individual. There's an expression of repentance. And in keeping with what the Lord had already taught his disciples, when someone comes to you and says, forgive me, as he says very clearly in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 17, you must forgive him. Forgive him. And that's what happens. You have sinned. I know I have sinned. Forgive me. And the person turns and says, I will do that. I'll forgive you. And if you've had any teaching at all on the theology of forgiveness and maybe our biblical counseling department or other places, you know that when you forgive someone, that means it's over. There are no more obligations to be held over the person. It is not to be brought up again when there's genuine repentance, right? But what happens in this passage is that instant one comes to a close. Scene one ends. Scene one is an offense, a confrontation, a repentance, a forgiveness. Scene one's over. Scene two is the person who committed the original sin goes out. And what does he do? He commits another sin in instant two, in scene two. In scene three, what happens? The Lord calls that person all the way back and he says to him, not only the wickedness of the sin in scene two, but what does he confront him on in this passage? What does he now make him pay for in this passage? The sin in what? Scene one. The sin that he had been forgiven of. Do you understand what is happening here? It's an incredible passage. Because what Christ is saying to us is that not only must we receive the expression of repentance, but we have an obligation, if we're to be involved in the body of Christ, to continue to be involved in this person's life so that there may be a demonstration of that repentance by the fruit in their life. And in this case, there was not. Which not only gave a lie to scene two, it brought us back to scene one and gave a lie to the expression of repentance there. You understand that's what's happening. It's a very critical issue of spirituality and, and sin in the life of a person. Because our life isn't like a cheesecake that you can divide up real neatly and, oh, there's a bug in this piece, but oh, it doesn't bother the cheesecake over here. It's more like a hot pizza where the, where you've heard me say before, where the cheese kind of oozes everywhere. And if you get a contamination in this piece of the pizza, because it's hot and it's all running together, it contaminates the whole pizza. And that's the teaching of our Lord in this passage. That if there is sin here, then there is good reason to believe there is also sin here, though there was confession and repentance expressed. Let me give an illustration. This doesn't happen, but this is a hypothetical. I come home from work one day, and when I come home from work, I walk into the living room and I see a big hole in the wall. It wasn't there when I left, but there's this hole. And the hole is about the height of a a nine-year-old with a baseball bat. And I see this hole, and I, what in the world? And, and I know that 
Nate's been there. I, I hear him in the in the other room, and I and I can see him through the house. And Nate is sitting there, and he's got this bat on his lap, and there's dust on the end of it. And I call through the house, and the only other person home is Kim. So I say, Nate, come here. And I bring him over, and I say, Nate, the hole. Tell me about it. And Nate looks at me, and he just lowers his head and says, with obviously a a spirit of contrition, says, Dad, I'm sorry I did that. I was angry, but I was wrong. I didn't do well in practice today. I came in, I swung the bat, and I put this hole in the wall. Can you forgive me? I put my arm around Nate, and I say, Nate, of course Dad forgives you. I'll get in there, I'm going to beat you. No, I mean, that's a community. Of course I'll forget you, forgive you. Come in here. Let's go into the dining room and sit down and talk about this. So we sit down at the table, and I'm talking to Nate. And I look, as I begin to talk to him and, and to be, be able to move into this repentance, I look over his shoulder, and I see another hole. There was one in the living room that he confessed to, and now there's one in the dining room. And I'm looking over his shoulder, and it's the same height, the same type of hole. It wasn't there when I left this morning, because when I sit at the table and and have my time with the Lord, I'm looking right at that wall, and I know that that hole was not there. So I look at Nate, and I say, Nate, turn around. He looks at the hole, and he says, yeah. Tell me about the hole. So, oh, Dad, I didn't do that one. I didn't do that. I said, now, wait a second, Nate. It wasn't there when I left. Your mother's been here all alone all day. You just got home. The bat's in your hand. The height is the same. Everything says it's got to be you. It wasn't me. And I don't think I need to ask your mother. I don't think it was her. Because her holes are much higher. (laughs) It had to be you. And Nate says, no, 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 no. Dad, I don't. It's strange, isn't it? I don't know how it happened. (laughs) But I didn't do it. Factually, objectively, logistically, practically, really, he did do it, and I know he did it. But as I confront him on the sin in scene two, he denies it, and he lies. If I'm going to be consistent with the teaching of our Lord here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, what am I going to do? I'm not only going to confront him on the sin in scene two. What is this going to say to me about the reality of his repentance in scene one? It gives a lie to it, doesn't it? Because repentant people, broken people, do not respond that way. And if Nate was genuinely repentant in scene one, I would see a different person in scene two. And I bring him back, all the way back, and I discipline him. Not just for scene two, but also for the sin in scene one. Because I have a responsibility as a father to not only confront him in his sin through my obligation of initiation and to go to him in a loving way and put my arm around him through the obligation of right motivation in my heart when I do it, but I also have an obligation to pursue him so that he understands without any doubt that true repentance bears fruit. In his life. And as I pursue him, I see that that fruit's not there. And more than anything else, 
more than anything else, I want my son to understand what true repentance is. I don't want him to, to go on one minute thinking he's right with God and him in reality not be right with God. So as much as I would want to bypass this, as much as I don't want to be doing this, because I love him and I love my Lord, and I understand the dynamics of holiness and sin, I confront him on both sides. That's the teaching here. It's an amazing story. You say, David, why in the world are you giving us this message now? Man, this, is, this is a beginning of the year message. Not an end of the year message. But I'm doing it because, you know what? I, I just bet by now you've had someone confront you wrongly. I guess we could ask for a show of hands. I bet that's true. And if you've not had someone confront you wrongly, not according to these principles, I bet anything you've heard about someone doing it wrongly, whether a student or a staff. You know what? I'll even assume that the story was accurate because in a lot of cases, if not most cases, the process is never perfect. So I know by now that when I teach, open up the Bible to Matthew 18 and say, okay, initiation, motivation, obligation. You're sitting there thinking, yeah, but man, I know what happened to me and I know what happened to this person and now I tried to do it and I didn't do it right. Isn't it just an amazing thing that Christ just had to know all that? Isn't it just amazing that in Matthew chapter 18 that he's addressing the very people and calling them to these principles that he knew later would fail at them miserably? Gang, I think this is a timely message because I think we all need to be reminded after we've been knocked down, after we've fallen and stumbled, after someone has messed up the whole process in my life and I've messed it up in theirs and I've heard stories about it all through campus, we need to be called back to what the Bible calls us to be. And you're going to have to be like me and you're going to have to press through the stories, you're going to have to press through the failures, your own and someone else's, And say, you know what, Lord? I'm just going to have to trust you. That you knew that we wouldn't do this perfectly. You knew that we couldn't set our sin totally aside when we did it. You knew that it was going to be messed up when someone came to me. But you called us to it. And we got to do it. Regardless of all the stories of catastrophe. The other reason I'm doing this at the end of the school year is not only because I know you've heard failure stories, but because your involvement in this community is quickly coming to an end, at least for this year. And you're going to go off to another community of believers. And I think we all need to be reminded, particularly you who are from out of town, that when you leave this community, the things that we have taught you do not just pertain to the dynamics of a Christian college. You take them with you. Matthew 18 follows you home to your youth group, to your family, and to your church. This is, I believe, uh, the time we all need to be reminded of these truths. Let me close with a quote from our president. From his, it's always a good way to end, particularly if he's going to listen to this tape. This is his commentary on Matthew, it's the second volume. Listen to what he has said. A Christian who is not deeply concerned about bringing a fellow Christian back from his sin needs spiritual help himself. 
smug indifference, not to mention self-righteous contempt, has no part in the life of a spiritual Christian, nor do sentimentality or cowardice that hide behind false humility. The spiritual Christian neither condemns nor justifies a sinning brother. His concern, rather, is for the holiness and the blessing of the offending brother, the purity and the integrity of the church, and most of all, for the honor and glory of the Lord. The Lord commanded Israel, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor, for I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. But John says, he goes on to say, that in this passage, the Lord says, quote, you must surely, however, reprove or confront your neighbor, unquote. Then John says, unwillingness to reprove a sinning believer is a form of hatred of him. It says that you don't love him enough to warn him of his spiritual danger. Not to reprove a sinning brother can do him more harm even than slandering him. Terrible as it is, slander affects primarily the other person's reputation and his feelings. Failing to confront and confess his sin, however, to help him confront and confess his sin, however, contributes to his spiritual downfall. The person who claims to be too loving to rebuke his brother or sister in Christ is simply deceived. He is not too loving, but too uncaring. The loving Christian, like the loving Heavenly Father and loving earthly fathers, desires the proper discipline of those he loves. Those are great words. Because if you and I are going to be faithful to the obligations that Christ calls us to, in love, we're going to have to come to one another and confront sin. It's not an option. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word to us. And God, I just pray that we will indeed find in you sufficient courage, not in ourselves, but in you the courage to do what your word so clearly calls us to in Matthew chapter 18. Lord, we know that we have failed at it. We know that others have failed at it. We know that we will fail again. But yet we trust that you are sovereign. We trust in your provision. And God, we just pray for the strength and the love to put our arm around someone that we know is in sin and with meekness and gentleness and humility bring them to genuine repentance. In your son's name we pray. Amen.